0: In the book of Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceedings to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. morning. Uh, My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at the Daniel Island Fellowship. For those who call our church home, I just want to say welcome home. And if you're visiting with us, I want to extend a warm welcome on behalf of our community of faith. As we begin to look at God's word, I invite us to bow one more time uh, for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those who are visiting, we have been making our way through the book of Acts this fall, and we are at the end of Acts chapter 2, and it is all about uh, the happenings and the doings of the early church. But before we dive into our passage, I want to begin with this question. When was the last time you saw a group rally around a common cause? When's the last time you saw a group of people rally around a common cause? I don't know about you, but Hurricane Dorian uh, was quite the event. A couple weeks ago, we were asked to evacuate. Some of us did evacuate. Some of us may not have evacuated. And uh, my family was one of those families that held on to the last minute, and and we watched a different forecast every few hours, right? And I talked about this in my last sermon, how it was hard to get a handle on who had the right information and which way the storm was going. Well, I I think it was a Thursday as Hurricane Dorian made its way through and past Charleston. And one of the things beyond being cooped up and playing board games and having feisty uh, you know, interchanges with my family, one of the things we saw was in our front yard, we saw this oak tree just slowly fall to the ground. It was this beautiful live oak. It's about 30 feet tall. And so by about 5 PM, uh, we were reading on the internet that most of the storm had passed. So I said, kids, um, it's time for us to go save this oak tree. And, uh, and it was still 30 mile an hour plus winds, and, and there were rains, and, but I was cooped up, and I thought, this is a good way to extend my power and you know, create unity in my family. So I said, let's go outside, let's pull up this oak, and we didn't move in an inch. And so I, I said, you know what, this is a great opportunity for team building So I then texted my next door neighbor, who doesn't go to this church, and another neighbor who does go to this church, and I said, would you help me pull up this oak that's fallen? And so they show up, and we couldn't move it an inch, right? And I was like, well, now what? But before I called off this group rally, this group event, uh, John Ramey, our own John Ramey, started texting and calling everyone he knew, and uh, before you know it, there was between 12 and 15 people from around the neighborhood in our front yard, still with, I think, a tropical storm winds, howling, rain pummeling us. Some of the men just reluctantly were walking up like, oh, wow, like I got called out and invited in, but I really don't want to be here, right? And so I have a video um, from that episode. My wife She declined to help with the tree, but she did want to videotape secretly, so she shared this after the fact. So let's watch this group rallying together, okay? And I want you guys to notice, JT, who's right here in the second row, he was pulling on Caden, not the actual tree. I thought, that's kind of interesting. We all have different approaches, but watch. Can we do it? Can we do it? And watch Will Ramey here. He takes a unique approach. He runs. He runs. (laughs) But, you know, he helped save the tree, right? And then you've got this guy who definitely doesn't go to our church who was called in. He's running with a shovel and he's backfilling. And this is a guy uh, that's trained NFL players, but somehow he got called in to save the tree. And uh, there you go, right? And so even this morning, uh, right? Teamwork, teamwork. Even this morning as I was telling uh, Wes Roberts, hey, um, you know, I think we saved that tree. In fact, the arborist said, like, we, we saved it just in time because the pool of water actually was medicinal to its root systems. So the fact that we were able to pull it up while it was still storming might have saved the tree. And so here's a picture from yesterday. So for all of those who uh, helped me with the tree who are in this room, thank you so much. I think we did save it. But it pointed to something unique and dynamic, which is this, the men who were reluctant to join in the beginning, they refused to leave my yard in the end. True story. So I, I was walking in going, hey guys, like I I think it's done for now. And we have Chris McGarty, who's, I don't see him here this morning, but he starts talking in in physics, truly physics language, and the rope needs to go here and there, and we had several ropes, and and Dave Robinson, our own Dave Robinson, I had left, and I'm still looking out the front, and he went home, and then he came back with caution tape, because he was scared that kids might be walloped by this tree falling again, right? Other neighbors who don't go to this church aren't believers, they came back with spikes, And they spiked it in and tied it down. Even other neighbors uh, came back with orange cones. It was really interesting, and I think it showed a deep truth, which is I think we're all called to a greater purpose and greater community. And I think that is at the heart of our passage this morning. A saved life leads to a shared life in Jesus Christ. A saved life leads to a shared life in Jesus Christ. And specifically, our passage, it's a short passage, it highlights four marks of this shared life in Jesus. So we're just going to go through these, and in a sense, they are a measuring stick for our own lives and our own church. Once you come to faith, you start to cultivate that faith in community. So let's look at these four marks this morning. The first mark is this. In Christ, we learn together. In Christ, we learn together. The passage reads, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And literally, it means they continually devoted themselves to the teaching. So a quick recap for those who have not been with us over the fall. Um, This book is written by a medical doctor, Luke. And he takes meticulous notes so that all who will read this book, they will um, come to faith and, and join God on mission. His, it, this is the second volume of uh, two volumes. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke. And the whole point of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the Savior of love. Like that's his conclusion after the end of that book. And then as we shift into Acts, he calls us to the mission of love. So it goes from like focusing on Jesus leading the disciples to then uh, them empowering them to lead others into this faith if you will okay so this what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching so early in Acts 2 there's this charismatic experience where the Holy Spirit is promised To these early disciples, it comes down and uh, he comes down with tongues of fire, fills them up. They start speaking in other languages so that all who are around can understand that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of love. And we've unpacked this over the fall, how it's a reverse of the Tower of Babel from early Genesis. It's a beautiful thing, but once they come to faith, they don't disperse. They actually come together even more And um, the point being, before the early church could go out, they had to grow up. And this somewhat flies in the face of of the Western church, doesn't it? It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. Paul would later write these words, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another... In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. These early disciples, the early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to learning together. And as I think of devotion, I think of Steph Curry. Do we have any basketball fans in here? Raise your hand, any? So here's a quote, You know, how did Steph Curry become one of the greatest shooters in the history of the NBA? Here's a quote from um, a media source, Stack. When you think about it, it's no wonder Curry has become what many consider to be the best shooter in the history of the NBA. He puts up a thousand shots in practice every week, not counting those he takes in games. His shooting form is perfect. His release is lightning quick. And it all began when he was a youngster, shooting around in the backyard with his father, Dell, a knockdown NBA shooter in his own right. Quote, when we were younger, my dad wouldn't let me and my brother shoot from outside the paint. Curry's younger brother, Seth, told Stack during a recent photo shoot. We had to work on our form, then get better at longer distances. You see, before they could go outside with their shot, they had to perfect it inside. And just as Curry is devoted to his craft, God wants us to be devoted to his word. How many shots does Steph Curry take before each game as he warms up? 200 shots. What would it look like for us to have the same kind of devotion to God and his word as individuals and as a community? Peter writes it like this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the first mark we see is in Christ we learn together. The second mark we see is in Christ we love together. The passage goes on they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and all who believed were together and had all things in common sorry the slides cut off there all things in common and then goes on to say they went and sold possessions and distributed to all those who had need This word fellowship comes from a Greek word which is koinonia anyone heard of that before koinonia and it means commonness or commonality. Now here's the really interesting thing. This word koinonia was not used before this instance in the New Testament. It was never used in the gospels. This commonness God is calling his the, the follower his followers not just to himself to oneness in himself but oneness with each other. And any time you see this word koinonia it entails sharing and doing life at the deepest level together. John Stott writes it like this in reflecting on this passage. Koinonia bears witness to the common life of the church in two senses. First, it expresses what we share in together. But secondly, Koinonia also expresses what we share out together, what we give as well as what we receive. Another theologian has this to say, fellowship costs something in the early church. In contrast to our use of the word fellowship today, fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It's not punch and cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joy of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. You see, when we grasp this truth, we value people over possessions. You catch that? When we grasp this truth of living in fellowship together, we value people. It means I value you over what I have under my control or possession. And as I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but think of our land. How many people were in our church in 2017? Raise your hand. Okay, let me tell you a little backdrop of our church as it relates to this eight acres we purchased. We secretly, as a leadership team, were praying, God, where would you have us build our church long-term? And we spent around eight months, I believe, doing due diligence without telling you that we were doing due diligence on this property. We kept extending the, the contract, if you will, and finally, the, the owner said, we can't keep extending it. And it was just at the right time because uh, I was able to come before you two years ago and say, guys, this is crazy. We have an opportunity to buy this land, but we only want to do it if we're all in it together. And the good and bad news is we don't have a lot of time to think about it. We have three weeks. So in three weeks, this church rallied together together gave $650,000, and we bought eight acres outright. Now the crazy thing is, we were not self-sustaining even at that point, meaning I was still raising funds from outside just to pay our staff. But that's what God does when he moves in a community. There's radical generosity. There's koinonia. In fact, there are people that were newer to our church that actually said, you know what? I feel so moved by what God's doing here and the vision of this church. I have a secondary property. I'm going to sell that property and give money to this campaign. We're all in. We had other people take their will and literally redo their will to create a legacy fund for our church. That's what you see when God's moving in a community of faith. And believe it or not, people are saying, well, when are we going to actually build on that property? Well, obviously when God sees fit, but there are some exciting things in the works. I just invite you to quietly start praying, God, what is it that you're dreaming for us? You'd have for us. And how would you want me to play a part in this? But this is what we see at the earliest stages of the the first uh, disciples. In Christ, they loved together. They had fellowship together, not just receiving, but giving. And then the third mark we see is in Christ, we worship together. This will hopefully create some unity where there's disunity. The passage says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So I don't know what church experience those of you have in the room. I grew up in a small Presbyterian home. My mom uh, is Catholic, so I also grew up going to the 6 a.m. Mass on Sundays at times with my mom. I've been in all different kinds of churches, You probably feel some of that here in the DI Fellowship. And uh, what I love about this passage, it it actually presents two different forms of worship, traditional or formal and informal. Uh, Check it out. It says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's a definite article. It is, and whenever this is used later in the New Testament, it is all about the Lord's Supper, rallying around the body and blood of Christ, which we do every week. But then it goes on to say they attended the temple together, formal worship, but they also broke bread and, and did this in their homes. You see, some of us are more comfortable just coming to church on Sunday in the more formal sense. You know, hey, like I, I feel led to be a part of the bigger story. And, and some of us feel uncomfortable in a more traditional sense uh, coming on Sunday mornings. They'd rather be in a home church or a community group, right? Well, the good news is that here at the DI Fellowship, We do both. Why? Because it's right here in Scripture. It says they formally worship together, basically at the temple, and also in the homes. And a question for you is, which way do you lean? Would you rather do formal worship? Like right here, right now? Or would you rather be around a table in a home? Both are okay. Both are encouraged. Both are actually necessary. Why? Because one ensures we participate in the larger story of Christ... And one ensures we're known in the little story of Christ. If you're only doing home groups, you're only going to be around people that are like you. And as you expand into Sunday mornings in a multi-generational approach, multi-ethnic approach, multicultural approach, you see the, the bigger story, you participate in that. And yet in a community group, you're known and you know and you love deeply, you love well. As John Maxwell says, you you find your 2 a.m. friend. So the third mark is we worship together. And then the fourth mark is this. In Christ we witness together. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How do you know your life in church are healthy? When you're attracting, not repelling people to the love of Jesus. Day by day, they worship together and they found favor with all the people. I grew up in a little town called Lake Wells in central Florida. And my my family uh, had to get out of there often. And we would drive to this little island called Sanibel Island. Anyone been to Sanibel Island? beautiful on the southwest coast of Florida. But coming from basically the southern Orlando area down, we could take different routes. Well, we went the back route. We went down to Avon Park, and then we cut across to the west to Zolfo Springs. I know many of you are from Zolfo Springs. Not really. But if you've ever taken that little highway, I don't even remember what that highway is. From, from Avon Park, Florida to Zolfo Springs, it is, it's repulsive. Why? Because there are slaughterhouses along the way. And as you drive as a young kid, I can still smell those processing houses for hog and cattle. And it was like, God, get me out of here. Right. It was so repulsive. And unfortunately, a lot of people have that experience with Christians and with the church. They've been hurt. They've been wounded. And that's not the way it's meant to be. Our community, our faith is supposed to be so dynamic and so loving and so transformative that we find favor with those in our neighborhoods, those in our workplaces, those in our schools, where they say they have something I don't have. And what would get me through this trip to Sanibel is as I was smelling the Nasty smell of these processing plants. I, I could only think of the smell of the bakery down at Sanibel Island with the fresh croissants we would enjoy every, every morning. In the favor you see, the attractiveness you see in the early church, it won souls. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If your life is healthy and your church is healthy, people are going to want to know what's going on What's different? And the pressure's not on us. It says, and the Lord. It doesn't say, and Mark. It doesn't say, and Scott. It says, and the Lord added. They were just vehicles for the Lord's grace and love, right? And the Lord added to their number day by day. So as a vibrant, active community, those who were being saved. This is also a sign of grace that, hey, uh, we Once we proclaim faith, we are saved, justification, but sanctification, we will be saved. We're not who we're meant to be. We're a work in progress. Jonathan, you're not perfect yet, right? So God will continue to save us and manifest his work in us. And as I think about this, the attractiveness of what God does in a vibrant, life-giving, Christ-centered community, I can't help but reflect on the last month. Last week, we had 40, ready? 48 people join our church. I think like 15 of those are kids. In knowing the different stories and what God's doing, bringing people together for this common community, for this. Koinania for this mission. It's so dynamic. And then not only did we have forty-eight people join our church, then we went to the beach and baptized a whole bunch of people. And there's these twin little boys. And as I was out in the water with them and I was asking one, I was going through just the instructions and kind of a call and response to to one of them. Hey, do you admit you're a sinner? You need God's grace. Yes. Do you believe that God sent his loves you so much he sent his son to die for you to offer you new life in him? Yes! Is it your desire to walk with him all the days of your life? And he screamed for those who were there? Yes! This little like 5 or 6 year old, he was all in. Right? That's what's happening there and that's what's happening here. A couple weeks ago also I think around 40 men from our church, we went out to a farm. And uh, we ate good food together. We shot some ski, and a man shared his testimony. And honestly, there were several men there I've never seen before. It it wasn't all these insiders from diffs. And that night, or excuse me, the next morning, I got a, a, a message from someone who's only been in our church about two months, an older gentleman. He said these words, thanks for the men's opportunity Men's night opportunity last night. I am all in for diff going forward. I went to sleep last night and had a very detailed and powerful dream of heaven with images I've never dreamed before. One of my many faults is questioning whether there's a God, sometimes even denying God's existence. And every culture imagines its gods to explain what it cannot What cannot be understood? And yet when the agnostic calls out for help, he has shown himself to me again and again. How can I ask for more? I write these things now with the hope it will be harder to deny them in the future. Although I do believe God loves a fair-minded agnostic, he smiles at how it's a necessary byproduct of free will and God-given logic. I suspect he delights when the doubtful come to him because it wouldn't really be as much fun if everyone was so easily won. P.S. I have never written to a pastor in my life with any kind of message about, much less a message like this. So maybe I'm off to a good start. You see, in Christ we witness together So, to recap, a saved life leads to a shared life in Jesus. And my invitation and challenge is simple. And it applies to you, Hannah, you, Caitlin, you, Dave. All of us. It's let's learn, let's love, let's worship, and let's witness together. Wherever you're you're at, wherever your life has taken you, whatever wounds you're carrying whatever burdens, whatever hopes, whatever dreams. Let Him have your heart and let's do it together. So much so that you're like my neighbors who some I barely know and they're like, I don't want to leave. I want to be a part of a greater story, a greater purpose, a greater community. And guess what? You're hardwired for that in Jesus Christ. You're meant to, be, to, to, to live for more. Amongst a greater tribe, a greater community. Let's fall in love and lead with love and share with love and let's see what God does saving people day by day. Are you in? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this story of the early church, how you not only call us to yourself, you call us to one another. A shared life. God, I pray right now that we would learn, we would love, we would worship, and we would witness well. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Draw us not only to one another, but to our world that's in need. Starting even today when we leave this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.